This is Fate's Wide Wheel with Sam and Dennis. This week, we're talking about the movie Source Code, the 2011 movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel. I'm Sam, joined, of course, by Dennis. We're here this week because we actually have a plan. We have. We have a, we it's, do. it's so different <laughs> from I the know. past few times. We have a plan, and this is one I've been wanting to do for like four years. Yeah, Ever and, since and it's we funny started. because... You've you know you've mentioned the film to me a number of times, and I you know there's always been kind of this lazy sort of like yeah I'll watch it eventually I'm sure I'll see it that sounds interesting you know maybe even a little bit of like lazy skepticism where it's just sort of like will I like it I don't know and you know because I'm kind of like hot and cold on Jake Gyllenhaal as an actor anyway but you know I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about it and I'm so glad that I finally watched it awesome excellent so of course we're, we are here to talk about Source Code from 2011. Ten years ago, almost ten years ago to the day. Was ten years ago, yes, I saw this on my birthday. Ten years ago, nice. Two thousand eleven. It was the last movie that me and the woman I was dating at the time saw together in the theater. Interesting. Yes, and I mentioned this the other night. We uh, I saw each other at your gig last night. Again, awesome job. Uh, I've Thank only seen this, uh, including the rewatch for this. I've only seen the movie three times: 2011, and then I watched it like five years ago with Betsy, um, mm-hmm. and then preparing for this rewatch. So it's nice, it's fresh, um, but I haven't watched it like so much that I'm that I'm here to overanalyze it today. Right. Um, you know, and I get that. This is the type of film that I think that you don't necessarily have to have multiple viewings of to for it to be rewarding and for it to leave enough of a mark that you're going to think about it. So sure. I, I kind of get that it's not like, oh, yeah, I've seen this like six or seven times or, or whatever, you know, because there's some movies uh, that you just want to live in. There's some movies that are just kind of like, you know, become comfort food. And then there are some films that you just you know, it's a great movie and you really like it. And it's one of your favorite movies, but you don't need to see it you know, once a year or whatever for it to remain in that sort of like special place. So, um, I I get that about this one. Yeah. Cool. So we, we, with, with us having stuff to talk about, we got to like get on a format here, uh, cause it's been very loosey goosey. Uh, so basically here's the format for this episode. Uh, we are going to do, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of, uh, the background on the production of the movie, Sam's going to hit you with the IMDb highlights of the actors. Then we're going to give basically a non-spoiler review. If you haven't seen the movie yet um, and you do want to see it, hopefully this first part will pique your interest in the movie. Then shut it off. Go watch the movie uh, at some point in the next few days or a couple weeks. And then come back and listen to the last part and see if uh, your analysis of the movie and what you thought of it is the same as, as ours. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, So Source Code, uh, like I said, it was released in April of 2011. It had debuted at South by Southwest a month before. Um, Opened to generally, has pretty good reviews out there. It was generally pretty favorably uh, reviewed. It was written uh, by Ben Ripley. He hasn't written a whole lot on his own. From what I understand, he does a lot of uh, ghostwriting. He does a lot of rewrites. Now, at the time that he started writing this movie, he thought he had, no, he had enough 
clout in Hollywood that he could basically pitch it and get a deal based on that. But he, the, the plot was a little bit so out there, he had to go and write a spec script for it to, to get it picked up. Um, even then, it took a while. In 2007, this was on The Blacklist, and The Blacklist is a list of uh, screenplays that is released every year of the, the most liked unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. Um, but at some point after that, production went into uh, to effect. Jake Gyllenhaal was cast as the lead. And when Jake came on board, uh, he was the one who pushed for Duncan Jones to be the director. Duncan Jones, he's also someone hasn't had a lot of, of credits. Uh, probably he's David Bowie's son. I, I did not know that. Yeah, David Bowie's now. oldest son. Yeah. yeah. Um, his other most well-known movie is probably Moon from 2009. And when he came on board, I don't know if Ben Ripley saw all the parallels with our favorite show, Quantum Leap, but Duncan Jones definitely did. Yeah. And so that is what led to the, uh, to the nice homage. I mean, all of the movies, a little bit of an homage to Quantum Leap and, and, and indirectly, um, not purposefully, but there is a very purposeful homage to Quantum Leap later in the movie, which we'll get into in our spoiler section. Uh, but that was Duncan Jones's idea to bring on. Um, and I guess I should have started with this in case you don't know what source code is about at all. I'll read you the description uh, very quickly off IMDb. A soldier, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, wakes up in someone else's body and discovers he's part of an experimental government program to find the bomber of a commuter train within eight minutes. Uh, and this movie also has a special connection to uh, Sam and me because it takes place in Chicago, or basically leading into Chicago. Uh, I think on what they call, um, I'm not sure what it's called within the movie, the CTT. I can't remember what it stands for. Um, but it, it's basically, it's the Metro line coming into Chicago, although they yeah. don't call it the Metro in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, which is fascinating because I was reading, and this is more your wheelhouse, so I don't want to say too much, but I was reading that they used uh, a Metro train at one point. Like, they had a couple of actual Metro cars um, that they used, and, and they used a CTA map, uh, which is funny because, you know, of course, Metro trains don't have CTA maps because they're not... Two di- yeah, two totally different yeah, two systems different lines. Chicago. Yeah, but, uh, but that they re colored the CTA the map mm-hmm. so that it didn't look... Yeah, so because I guess they couldn't work out clearances or rights or whatever, but yeah. uh, I found that interesting. This is one of those... Uh, if you live in Chicago, it can be a little bit frustrating because you see all the incongruities. But if you don't live in Chicago, whatever. It's a movie. Who cares? Right. Uh, you know, like everything you just pointed out. Like, yeah, there are CTA maps on the train. Two totally different lines in Chicago. Um, they... There's a Glenbrook station that is mentioned and they have a scene at in the movie that actually, if you're coming in from Chicago, it comes in from the Northwest, but the train would eventually does reach Chicago. It comes in from the South. They say they're on their way to union station. They don't go to union station. They actually go to millennium park, which are two different yeah. metra endpoints in Chicago. Um, but again, if you don't live in Chicago, you don't know. And of course right. a, a huge Chicago landmark is the cloud or the bean. The bean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, uh, and it's the thing, I don't know if you know, I remember when I first watched this movie, I kind of had a hint of how the movie was going to end mm-hmm. because throughout the movie, they keep flashing and showing the bean 
Right. So I kind of had a hint of how the movie was going to how was going to end up. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. I'll certainly we'll we'll get into that in the spoiler talk for sure. sure. But um, yeah, uh, man, I'm sorry. Continue. I just, I, I have I, I'm really looking forward to, to to talking a little bit more in depth because uh, again, I you know I just saw it the once. I decided not to do a rewatch. I didn't take a lot of notes, but I sure. definitely have a lot of thoughts and feelings. So yeah, no, yeah, that's pretty much what I have as far as like the background leading up. Great. Well, then I'll take over here with some quick IMDb stuff. You know, the interesting thing is, is that uh, the film technically has a small core cast, but it's pretty large cast when it comes to all the faces and folks on the the train that he, you know, ends up interacting with. I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, I'm just going to stick to kind of the core cast and maybe a couple of the other commuters, because, again, I feel like there's not it, it, it just wouldn't be beneficial. You know, yeah. it wouldn't it, we wouldn't glean a lot from it. Uh, let's start off with. Jake Gyllenhaal, um, you know, he's someone obviously that uh, he's a bona fide star, uh, has been working since he was 11 years old. Uh, his first, uh, professional credit was in city slickers. Uh, he played a boy, um, in, in that, uh, one of the sons, I believe. Um, I, I think the, you know, the first thing that he probably got known for was October sky, uh, in 1999. Um, and and Donnie Darko, which came out in the same year. Uh, it's funny because he followed those two up with Bubble Boy, which is probably one of the worst films ever made. Uh, and and in my opinion, that kind of typifies his career. Uh, he'll make he'll make a couple of really good movies, and then he'll make some absolute garbage films. Uh, that has that has slowed down a bit in recent years. I feel like he's chosen more quality projects, interesting projects. But I do feel like the bulk of his career is typified by oh that's good, oh that's good, wow that's awful, um, and. And I feel like that's the same can be said of his performances. I think sometimes he's incredible and and nuanced and you know just just a wonderful actor. And then there are other times when I'm like, you, 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 your 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 work isn't holding up, man. Like what's what's going on here? Uh, and it could just be the script, the direction. He's trying something new, whatever the case may be. The thing I appreciate most about him is that he he continues to take risks, and he doesn't always choose the big budget film. Um, you know, he's made a lot of films that are smaller budget and even somewhat controversial. Um, you know, you look at, uh, I mean, I hate to even call it controversial, especially today, but I mean, even look at his turn in Black, uh, Brokeback Mountain. I feel like, you know, at the time that was, you know, kind of a brave choice for him. Again, that's one of his films where I feel like he's overshadowed by the rest of the cast. Cause I think that Heath Ledger gives one of the most towering performances in all of cinematic history in that film. And I don't think that Jake Gyllenhaal really even compares. Um, and, and of course, Michelle Williams is brilliant, uh, as well. But, uh, you know, Brothers, I feel like, was also a film that was a little bit controversial when it first came out about the, uh, you know, he's a, a, a war veteran who comes back and finds out that his brother, played by Tobey Maguire, has, you know, kind of made a move on his, his girlfriend slash wife. Uh, and, and then, uh, of course, Source Code comes, and uh, that's definitely kind of, it, it was not a big budget picture. You know, the, the script had gotten acclaim, and it was a little bit of buzz, but it didn't necessarily, like, generate a lot of commercial appeal. Um, uh, Enemy and Nightcrawler, I think, are two other examples of sort of those under-the-radar films where he gives incredible performances. If you haven't seen Enemy, I highly recommend it. It's just, it's an incredible film. 
film and even more a bit of a mind fuck than than source code can be um but it's great uh nightcrawler is the same way uh but then he'll make a movie like southpaw which i feel like was an uh, was was sort of like his attempt at making the fighter um which was a david russell movie with uh, mark Wahlberg and christian bale which is an incredible film and southpaw is not southpaw comes off as like a third-rate rocky it's like it's not it's not a good movie uh he's not bad in it but you know, so it's just interesting. Like I said, he kind of continues that that trend. Uh, you know, most recently, uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home, playing Quentin Beck um, slash spoiler alert Mysterio, um, which I think he's great in. I think it's actually a wonderful performance. He's having a lot of fun in it. Uh, you, you know, bouncing back from kind of being the con artist to the villain to the you know, and uh, just a really really good performance uh, in in you know that big budget you know, blockbuster movie. Uh, he's got some stuff coming up. The, the fascinating thing that I found about his career is that most of his upcoming credits and a lot of his recent credits are producer credits. Um, he, he does seem like he's, you know, not slowed down, but whereas he was usually making like, you know, three, four, even in some years, five movies a year, he's really kind of, you know, it's more like one or two films a year, um, or, or not even, you know, uh, anything, uh, in a year for the past, like four years or so. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I've given him a little shit here, but I think he is a fantastic actor. I love watching him. And when he's good and in the movies that he's good in, I, I am absolutely there for it all day. What about you? I'm trying to think of uh, movies that I've seen all the way through. I've forgotten all about Donnie Darko, obviously. Uh, Donnie Darko. The first movie that I saw him in ever was Moonlight Mile. And I'm not sure if you're familiar oh, with that one. Totally, yeah. Dustin Hoffman and Susan Sarandon, right? Love that movie. Also, that movie yeah. came along like the summer after my dad passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though it's not about the death of a parent, um, I had not yet watched Six Feet Under, and I had never seen a movie deal with it. I felt like that really raw aftermath, just like days after yeah. someone passing away. And my dad passing away, that was the first time I experienced that in my life as a person. So that movie had a, like a very special meaning for me at the time. And I haven't seen it in quite a while, so I don't know if it would still hold up uh, beyond that. And then um, Nightcrawler is one phenomenal in that movie. I really enjoyed it. I've never actually seen Brokeback Mountain. I need to add oh, it to my okay. list. Never actually uh, have, have seen it. Um, I love that movie. And I just recently saw Far From Home for the first time a few weeks ago and thought he was excellent in that i think he's excellent in this movie and his name never comes up because he's probably too big of a star to be considered but if they were to ever do um a move like a straight theatrical version of quantum leap i would think he'd be a pretty good sam like he's got i totally agree he's even got enough similar facial features that to scott bacula i think yeah He'd be pretty good. He'd bring a little bit uh, of a different edge than uh, yeah. than our boy Scott. I feel like, you know, going back to Moonlight Mile real quick, I feel like it always garnered unfair comparisons to The Ice Storm, which is an Ang Lee movie with uh, Kevin Klein and Tobey Maguire. And I think that one of the reasons why it garnered that, that sort of similarity is because it was, you know, took place around the same time, this, you know, early mid seventies, um, dealt with, uh, you, you know, a family and kind of their dysfunction. Um, but whereas the ice storm was more about sort of just like, 
dysfunctional families uh you know moonlight mile dealt like you said with with grief and mourning uh, especially in the immediate aftermath but you do kind of look at the cast and there's you know the parallels between dustin hoffman and kevin klein and susan sarandon and um oh god i'm gonna forget her name now and i feel horrible for forgetting her name uh joan allen and um uh, uh sigourney weaver and, and then of course you've got toby Maguire and jake gyllenhaal who have played brothers before and so it's it's almost too bad in a way uh that that moonlight mile got those comparisons because it came out a couple of years after the ice storm. Um, and I feel like that kind of maybe hurt it a little bit in the eyes of some people, uh, that didn't take a chance on it. Uh, cause the ice storm was very acclaimed, got, you know, nominated for Oscars and stuff. Whereas moonlight mile, I, I think you know, it didn't generate same, some of the same stuff. I, I think moonlight mile ended up being a very limited release. Uh, cause I remember mm. seeing a trailer for it, uh, in front of some movie that I can't remember. I think it may have been before Spider-Man. Actually, like the original like be, 2002 yeah. Spider-Man. And I was so excited to see it. But then when the movie actually came out, no theater near me actually played it. I had to wait until the movie came out on DVD. Yeah, so I wondered, I, yeah. I, yeah, so I wonder if, if it suffered a little bit just because it didn't get as wide a release. It could be. That very well could be. It was, you know, I felt like it was a part of, uh, there, were, there was a rush of films made in the late 90s and early 2000s that, you know, independent films with uh, bigger name actors um, that I, I feel like got more appreciation when they hit DVD than they ever did in the theaters. Um, and, and in some ways, I think that's because, you know, the early early 90s in particular kind of ushered in a golden age of independent filmmaking and you know naturally with over the next five years you, you had a glut of independent films with big name actors in them uh, or actors kind of making their name on those independent films and some of them blew up you know something like Shakespeare in Love for instance um, or Pulp Fiction uh, uh, or Clerks but you know the, you also had a lot that much like Moonlight Mile kind of just ended up you know drifting into uh, uh, your rental stores. Remember when you did that, when you went to the store and you rented a movie? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I concur with you. I think it's a great film. People should check it out. And his performance is fantastic in it. Um, moving on, uh, Michelle Monaghan. Oh, man, I had such a crush on her uh, back in the day, like when I was in college. And the main reason for that was a little film by the name of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which uh, is just a wonderful movie. It was uh, kind of the first film in the sort of, you know, Robert Downey Jr., uh, comeback trail that that really kind of hit. Um, he I think he'd done the Singing Detective that Mel Gibson directed or produced. Um, you know because for those that don't know, before Mel Gibson became kind of a deserved pariah, uh, he's pretty much responsible for you know saving Robert Downey Jr. Like he's the guy that that, that got Robert Downey Jr. out of drugs and alcohol and, and got him sobered up um, and then uh, put him in that movie, The Singing Detective. And uh, it did not really go anywhere or do well, but people were like, oh, you know, hey, Robert Downey Jr. is great and, and maybe we should give him another chance. And Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I think, was the was the first movie that really opened a lot of reopened eyes and, and opened doors for him. And of course, would lead to stuff like Iron Man eventually, and, uh, and put him on the track to be, you know, one of the biggest movie stars in the world until he made Doctor Doolittle. Uh, so, 
<laughs> so uh, uh, Michelle Monaghan played the female lead in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, opposite uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Uh, she's just incredible, and and uh, the character and her work is incredibly layered. You know, you, you kind of think at first that she's supposed to be this wholesome girl next door, and you learn that she's just as much of a con artist as like Robert Downey Jr.'s character is. And they, you know, they have a really wonderful, fun relationship in the movie. Uh, the movie is written and directed by Shane Black, who, uh, for those that don't know, he's responsible for writing. Uh, the, the Lethal Weapon films, um, amongst others. Just, you know, obviously his dialogue sparkles. He's so great at writing kind of those male-male relationships in particular. And in this film, it's no exception. The relationship between Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer is exceptional. But Michelle Monaghan adds so much to the film. Um, it wasn't her first role by, by a long shot. She'd done stuff uh, before that, including a run on Boston Public. Um and a few other television guest spots and, and, and films where she kind of, you know, played a little bit of a part. Uh, arguably, I'd say her next really big thing was Mission Impossible 3, where she played uh, Julia, who would then go on to be the wife of Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt character. She's reappeared in uh, the next two films in, in Mission Impossible series. Uh, her next big role after Mission Impossible 3 was Gone Baby Gone, which was, of course, the Ben Affleck-directed uh, adaptation of the Dennis Lehane novel. Uh, she plays Angela uh, Angie Gennaro in that film, and she's fantastic in it. Um, her scenes with, with Casey Affleck and some of the stuff that they're able to get across without making explicit um, uh, is just wonderful. And, and anyone who's read the novels would know what the characters are kind of dealing with, but it's never made explicit on screen. And I think that that's wise because there's just so much tension um, between the two that's just lovely. Um, and I think that their their performances are, are quite just remarkable and wonderful. Um, you know, she made a few films after that. None of them, I don't think, were in that same uh, uh, realm as, as the other two movies that I mentioned. Uh, she would, of course, then go on to do Source Code in 2011. Um, and then her next big thing, in my opinion, was her run on the first season of True Detective, um, where she plays... Uh, uh, oh, no. Is it the husband of Woody Harrelson? Or the husband... <laughs> <laughs> the wife of uh, Woody Harrelson's I so. character, yeah. I believe. Yeah, um, yes, that's it. That's it. Uh, and she's fantastic um, in, in True Detective. I think one of the things that's most remarkable about that is just the way that you know she's able to to kind of balance the you know the younger version of the character and the older version of the character so well. I mean, obviously McConaughey and Harrelson are just absolutely out of this world, but you know you, you've got to have people that are that are just as good around you in order to support that kind of work, and she certainly fits that bill. Um, you know, she's done a lot of other film and television. She's kind of bounced back and forth between the two, uh, over the intervening decade and certainly has some stuff coming up. Uh, she's one of those people that I, I just adore and I think she's wonderful. Um, but you know, has not necessarily ever really had the huge spotlight thrown on her. Um, and I, and I think that's unfortunate. Uh, she's also, uh, from Winthrop, Iowa, which is about, you know, five, 10 miles, uh, uh, east of where I was born in Waterloo. Um, so hometown pride, uh, <laughs> any, any, any thoughts on, uh, uh, Michelle Monaghan, Dennis? No, I think this is the only movie that I've seen her in. Fair. See, that's you, kind of what yeah. I was talking about. Yeah. Like, you're you much know, more well-versed in her career and yeah. Uh, next up is uh, a, a another favorite of mine is Vera Farmiga. I think that she is just exceptional. Of course, the first thing I saw her in was The Departed and... In, in a movie that is filled with like towering performances and that is, you know, absolutely, I, I think, dominated in a lot of ways by Leonardo DiCaprio, um, she... I mean... 
I, Jack Nicholson is is iconic in everything he does, and and I love him, and I will watch him, you know, eat a bowl of soup. But that said, I I would say that that she I, outshines everyone in that film, with the exception of DiCaprio. Uh, I think she's just phenomenal in the movie. She's in one of my favorite scenes in cinema history when uh, DiCaprio visits her apartment, and uh, you know they're standing there having this conversation, and it's clear that there's all of this tension between the two of them, and uh, he just kind of looks around the house and he says, you know got cats. I like that. And I don't know what it is, but that scene, you know, kind of the lead up, the build up to that line, the delivery of the line and the aftermath of that line is just, just an exceptional piece of cinema, in my opinion. And it's so simple and and silly and whimsical in a lot of ways, but so loaded. Um, she's brilliant in up in the air opposite George Clooney. Um, you know, the, the reveal, which I'm not even going to spoil here, even though the movie's like, you know, over 10 years old, but the reveal that happens with her character in particular is so fucking heartbreaking because you love her so much, just like Clooney does, you know? Um, and she's been all over the place. Uh, I, I, most recently, uh, Bates Motel playing, you know, Norman Bates's mother, uh, uh, which ran for like, what, like three, three, four seasons, something like that. Uh, she's great in that. And, and she's done, you know, just a bunch of other film and, and television uh, as well. Uh, one of the other things that, um, that I loved her in uh, more recently. Um, oh, I lost it. Well, point is, she's great. I could watch her do anything. Um, and I, I worked with a woman uh, in a production of The Diary of Anne Frank, uh, and her sister was working on a film with her. And I, for the life of me, can't remember the name of the film at all. Uh, but this woman, you know, was just telling me about how phenomenal she was and, you know, kind and just wonderful and down to earth. Um, most recently, you could have seen her in Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Uh, she's also got coming up the Hawkeye uh, television series for Disney+. Plus. She's going to play the mother of Haley Steinfeld's character, Kate Bishop. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how that, that relationship is, is depicted on screen, just knowing what it's kind of like in the comic books. Um, she's also going to be in The Many Saints of Newark, which for anyone who loves The Sopranos, that's The Sopranos feature film that is finally being made with James Gandolfini's son playing a young Tony Soprano. Uh, it's actually more about Dickie Moltisante, who is Christopher Moltisante's father, than it is Tony Soprano, but obviously Tony Soprano is going to have a fairly big role. I'm pretty sure, although it has never been confirmed officially, it's pretty much been confirmed in every other outlet you possibly could, that she is going to be playing Livia Soprano, Tony's mom, and that is the best possible casting. Like she's going to be brilliant. And I, I can't wait to see that. Um, I know that the film is kind of being a bit plagued with some post-production stuff just because they did do some reshoots. And, uh, I think part of the problem is, is that the movie had a running time close to four hours and they were like, well, we got to figure this out. So, um, you know, I mean, that's just what happens, right? When you do a TV series that it basically is shot like one long film over six seasons. Uh, it's probably hard to edit yourself down to two hours or whatever. Uh, but I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and she's great in this as well. Um, interesting tidbit. Uh, she had just found out that she was pregnant when they started filming this and it was the last thing that she made. And she knew it would be the last thing that she made, you know, for, for about 10 months, uh, is what she said in an interview basically. So she really, you know, she wanted to kind of get in and get out and she shot her, you know, her part in like just a few days. She was, you know, which is kind of remarkable. I think it was 10 days. And I, 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 somewhere elsewhere, I read um, an interview with her that she found the role in this movie really challenging because on paper, mm. it's just providing a bunch of exposition. Yeah. Um, and what she, the challenge that she found was like, 
it was in what the character did not say and what she had to convey with just the way she, with just her looks uh, and her expressions. And in many ways, like she is like, she is the heart of this movie. Like she is the, she is the every man of this movie uh, a little bit. And like, helping uh, uh, culture along in his journey. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in, in so many ways, she's got to be the, the emotional tie for him. Sure. Um, and that, that we see uh, on screen, um, you know, I think clearly from the character motivation standpoint, it's his father and eventually Christina. But I think that, uh, uh, you know, she's got to be kind of that, that connection, um, it is a difficult role, but it's, it's great. Um, and then playing our heavy, uh, if you will, is the just incredible Jeffrey Wright, um, as Dr. Rutledge, uh, you know, guys had a 30 plus year career and, and really done, you know, a ton of stuff. Um, a, a lot of his earlier work is, is, is honestly kind of more blinking. You'll miss it. Um, it wasn't really until 2003 when he was in the angels in America, a television miniseries that he rose to prominence and, and well-deserved acclaim. I believe he picked up a few awards, golden globes and Emmys for that. Um, before, you know, prior to that, though, he had done uh, some great stuff, uh, including a stint on the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles as Sidney Bechet, mm. the famous saxophonist, uh, in uh, Young Indiana Jones and the Mystery of the Blues, which, by the way, is the only episode of the entire series that Harrison Ford guested in. He played uh, the elder uh, Indy uh, in the, you know, the bookends oh, wow. mm-hmm. um, that, that would normally have the, you know, the 90-year-old uh, Indy, sure. and in this case, it was, you know, supposed to be like the, the 50 or 60-year-old Indy. In a couple of years, we're going to get like the 80 year old Indy, but, uh, you know, um, (laughs) uh, and then of course, you know, in in addition to angels in America, he's been all over the place. Um, I think probably most notably in the new James Bond films playing Felix leader, the, you know, his uh, CIA counterpart, um, but, you know, a lot of other work in, in a lot of acclaimed films. He's just someone that's always great. Um, you know, he's in the Hunger Games uh, films uh, as BT. He was uh, he did a stint on um, Boardwalk Empire. Um, he, he's, you know, he's one of those guys that has played all sorts of roles, whether it's, you know, bad guys, good guys, lead roles, uh, you know, smaller parts, etc. He just takes he just takes the work and he does amazing, incredible uh, stuff. Uh, you know, he's also got a tie to the MCU. He's going to be the the voice of the watcher in the what if animated series that I believe will premiere by the end of this year, early next year. Um, he's also going to be playing commissioner, not commissioner in the film, but, uh, uh, one day commissioner James Gordon in the new Batman film with, um, Robert Pattinson. Mm. Um, I think most recently, probably the thing that people, you know, know him best from is Westworld, which is a show that I have yet to dive into. I need to do that. I know, but, uh, yeah, he's, uh, been in that since its inception. 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 (laughs) There he is. Yeah, I was looking over his IMDb profile and I missed Westworld. I was like, I know I remembered him. Like, yeah, there he is from there. Uh, That's where I've, uh, I am most familiar with him from there. I've seen the first like three or four episodes of Westworld. Excellent show. Wonderful show. It's one of those shows as I get older, like the, the violence in it. It's just a little bit too much for me. Mm, Sure. And so that's what's kept me from, from pressing on in that in that show. Um, and also I love the Hunger Games movie, so I'm familiar with him from there. And uh, like you said, he is just, he is excellent in this film. Um, he is the heavy. 
not a lot of nuance on paper, but he manages to give what uh, he manages to give the the character some some nuance. Um, yeah, yeah. You definitely hate him, but you can kind of understand where he's coming from. Right, right, absolutely. Um, it, we'll get a little bit more into that because there's definitely been a few things that uh, I feel like he's. Um, he does in this, in this role that, that, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of does justify some of his actions a little bit, maybe, um, which I think is also a testament to the script. Um, and then we've got, uh, just real briefly here, uh, Michael Arden, who plays Derek Frost, uh, not necessarily a huge, uh, career. Um, you know, he's certainly been fairly consistent, uh, uh, throughout the sort of the, you, you know, mid, uh, uh, 2000s, early 2010s, um, and then kind of seemed to disappear for a while. I'm not quite sure. You know, he might have been doing theater. He might have been doing something else. Uh, but most recently was in a few episodes of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel as Milk and mm-hmm. Prince. Um, you know, prior to that, he he did do uh, a lengthy run on Anger Management, um, playing the character of Patrick. I've never seen the TV series, so I have no idea, you know, what his role was like in that. But he was in 100 episodes, so good for him. Uh, <laughs> other than that, lots of TV show, you know, guest spots and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, nothing else really, really consistent. Um, I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more. It's hard to talk about him and his role without, you know, spoiling anything. So I don't want to do that. Um, interesting actor to talk about, Cass Anvar, who, mm-hmm. uh, plays, uh, Hazim. Um, he is probably most well known recently for his stint on The Expanse. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he has been the victim, not the victim, excuse me, he has been, whoa, uh, whoa, the, yeah, I know, what the, whoa, <laughs> that, was, that was an unfortunate, unfortunate mistake. Uh, I, he I, has, I haven't even he, heard he, this and I know where we're going. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he has been, uh, uh, how do I put this now? There have been over 30 allegations directed his way of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, and so he was of course promptly fired from the expanse and will not be returning, um, in, in the sixth and final season, uh, which will be interesting to see what they do because I've not read all of the novels in the series. Um, and I've only watched the first season of the show. I think the show is great. Uh, I think the books are fun and, 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 you know, just, just good kind of for the most part, like popcorn sci-fi, but there's some bigger stuff in there as well, which is nice. Um, and, and they're, you know, they're depicted in a very realistic manner. Um, so it's, uh, a lot of, you know, theories and stuff, but anyway, um, it'll be interesting because his character is, is, is a rather, you know, big, big part, not, not, not necessarily the lead or anything like that, but, but certainly an important part of the main crew. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Um, but Hey, you know, don't do bad things and you'll get to keep your job. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> next up, I'll go, uh, to Russell Peters, um, who, uh, has an interesting, uh, role in the film and, uh, takes part in probably one of my favorite parts of the movie and, and really kind of just a wonderful moment, uh, for not only his character, but of course for Jake Gyllenhaal's character as well. Um, he, you know, he's done a lot of film and television, a lot of voice acting, um, up comedy, obviously, which, which relates directly to his role in the movie. Um, a guy who's been, you know, steadily, and non steadily uh, in some in some eras, working mostly since uh, you know about like 2010 around the time this movie was made, but has really been you know doing stand up and, and known for stand up for you know probably about 30 years. So he's he's a guy that's definitely been around. Um, 
that's where I'm going to stop. You know, there, there are some other folks, uh, in the film that, that you can certainly check out again. It's kind of a, it has, it's, it has a deceptively large cast when it comes to the people that are kind of important. Um, and then of course there, there is one more notable person, especially when it comes to our little podcast and that is Scott Bakula. Um, that's all I want to say about it. We've talked Mm -hmm. about him and his role in the film before, but I'm not going to say anything else concerning him and his role until we get into the discussion of the film. Uh, so there you have it. There's our, there's our IMDb deep dive, if you will, on the, on the cast, uh, of this film, uh, crew wise, you know, you already kind of covered Ben Ripley and of course, Duncan Jones, uh, Duncan Jones, like I mentioned earlier, David Bowie's, uh, oldest son, um, really interesting guy, uh, has, has a, he's, you know, he's very honest, but ha- there have been like some, some claims by people close to him that he's just as detached as his father was, which I also find weird because I've heard the flip side true of his father, that his father was a very warm, loving person. But that, especially with the type of career that he cultivated for himself and the type of artist that he was, you know, he chose who he was close to. And if you weren't one of those people, then you were on the outside of his bubble. And he didn't let you come in and he didn't let you interfere with what he was creating and what he was trying to do. It just so happens that both David Bowie and his son Duncan Jones chose that one of the people that was going to be on the outside of that bubble was David Bowie's first wife and Duncan Jones's mother. Duncan Jones's mother apparently gave up all custody to him when uh, she and David Bowie got divorced. Um, she has said... Uh, whether or not this is to be believed or not, especially because of how ass backwards it seems that the reason why she did that was that she hoped that having to care for Duncan on his own would straighten David Bowie out from his lifestyle of, you know, drugs and alcohol and partying, which again is just sort of like, I would want to do the exact opposite if it were my child, <laughs> but Hey, you do you, uh, apparently they have no relationship whatsoever. And Duncan is more than happy with that. He does not consider her to be, you know, a good person or a good influence. And, um, yeah, just has no interest in having a relationship with her. Um, which, you know, Hey, uh, too bad, but also that's, you know, that's, that's his life. Um, uh, married, has children, um, been married to the same person for the past 10 years about and uh, has made um, really, you know, he's only got seven director credits. And one of those is a, uh, you know, concert video of his dad's um, and a short film um, and then one that's in pre-production. Uh, Moon, of course, got a lot of critical acclaim. Sam Rockwell, very slow film, very you know, meditative film. Then you've got Source Code, which is kind of the opposite of that. But both have a very sort of interesting sci-fi, you know, push the envelope special effects kind of um, vibe about them. Uh, He also directed Warcraft, which was an unfortunate, you know, video game adaptation that that didn't get much in the way of, you know, critical acclaim. Uh, And then, you know, has a film called Rogue Trooper, uh, which is, again, in, in pre-production, it is based on a British comic, uh, 2000 AD. Um, be interesting to see what he does with that, uh, just because, yeah, I know there's a lot of love for those characters, like Judge Dredd and such, especially on the other side of the pond. So uh, I look forward to it. I think he's got a great visual flair. I like his directing style, and I think his work on this film in particular is, is, is very good. So, um, so yeah, there, there you have it. I'm done. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, with both the writer and the director on this movie, like looking at their credits and seeing how limited they are, I was kind of surprised because uh, this is a yeah. very solid movie. You, uh, you said this uh, saying a minute ago about the expanse, like popcorn sci-fi with a little bit deeper to it. And I feel like the mm-hmm. purpose that, that very uh, adequately accurately sums up source code 
as well. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of deeper themes to it if you really want to dig into it. Or if you just want to have a good time for an hour and a half, it is a great hour and a half movie. It gives you just enough of the sci-fi theory to like, you know, to give you the plot. But then it doesn't get too deep in the weeds with it. Right. Um, and so if you're with us this far, I have a feeling you probably have seen the movie or at least enough of the movie that you've been interested in it to, to listen, you know, this far into into our podcast episode should, about it. Should we give should we just should we do like a quick like little capsule so, but, yeah, so spoiler free thing like Yeah, so I was gonna say, yeah, uh you know so basically like the first seven minutes of this movie is an is a episode of Quantum Leap. Guy wakes up, he is not himself, he is obviously disoriented, he looks in the mirror. I think the first thing he sees like uh he sees his reflection, reflection in the glass in and the, train. And yeah. that and that's what freaks him out because it's it's even though it's just a glimpse, like it's clearly not him. And then he goes right. into the bathroom on the train and it's clearly not him. And the first time, like he is just freaking out with Michelle Monaghan's character, Christina, because they are, they train mates. They know each other in some way because she jumps into a conversation immediately after he wakes up. And before he can really figure out what's going on, boom, train blows up. Then he wakes up, speaking of capsule, he wakes up like in a, in a, in a capsule. Um, he is in contact with uh, Colleen Goodwin, Vera, how do you say her last name? Farmesia. Farmesia. Uh, her character, and he's a soldier. He's on a mission. He is not traveling through time. He is in the last eight minutes of a collective memory of all of these people on the train. And he's not there to stop the bombing. He's there to figure out who planted the bomb because that was a calling card. And another bomb is going to be set off, a dirty bomb, sometime in Chicago later on in the day. And the entire movie is just him jumping back in, looping through, getting a little bit more oriented, and trying to figure out what's going on. Of course, he uh, falls in love. I don't know if that's the right thing. A little infatuated with uh, yeah, with Christina, I, develops more of a relationship with her, um, and also he learns more about himself and the true nature of what his existence is now. Because from his point of view, he was just in Afghanistan a couple of days ago. Yeah, he doesn't remember what happened before that. Very similar to our to our main character Sam. You know, waking up and not knowing who you are. Um, I would say his brain is Swiss cheesed, but that's just in poor taste considering what we see in the later moments of the film. (laughs) Poor taste. Um, And so, yeah, I I would get like like my capsule review beyond, you know, that. It's, uh, you know, like I said, a great movie. You can dig in deeper into the the themes, but you can just like sit back. You can enjoy it. I like, I've liked Jake Gyllenhaal in every movie I've seen him in. I really enjoy him in this movie. Like, he, he yeah. finds a good mix of being vulnerable when he needs vulnerable. But he's also, like, really good with the, with the one-liner quips that you get in action movies like these. And he manages to, like, pull it all off. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would go so far as to say this is legitimately one of my favorite performances I've seen from him. I, I just, there's, you know, are, are there deeper films like Enemy, for instance, that he's sure. been in? Are there sort of more out there performances like Nightcrawler? Are there, yeah. you know, I, I mean, sure, without a doubt, but I just think that this is such an incredibly solid performance from him, top to bottom. Uh, and he has a line um, 
to Michelle Monaghan's character, Christina, at one point where he's just recognizing in her that she's a good person. You know, he says, you're a good person. You're decent. And the thing is, is as he's saying it, it's just sort of like there's this connection that I had with him where it's just kind of like it takes one to know one. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you just seem like an incredibly decent, kind human as well. And uh, and he does some things within the course of the film that are, you know, kind of filled with this sort of mania that, that he has to, like, finish this mission, that he has to find all this stuff out. But as he gets to be a little bit more comfortable with some of these people and, and some of the moments that he's kind of traversing in those eight minutes that he keeps going back to... Um, there are some, there are just some incredible moments and in, in his, and in his character is just richly layered. And I think that it, in a way it's got to be difficult because you're basically replaying the same moments over and over again. Yeah. Obviously his, he interacts with the world in a way that changes things. So it's not the same scene, you know, every eight minutes or whatever, but, uh, um, you know, it's kind of like when we were talking about the Star Trek episode, you know, where where they kind of keep getting reset cause and, effect, and yeah. it, it cause and effect. And and, and 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 so there's there's a challenge there. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he obviously more than rises to the occasion. And I, I just really love the performance. I think it's just a lovely um, there's a lot of heart. There's 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 a lot of depth. Um, and he gets to do some really fun and cool things and he gets to have some really nice, wonderful moments, but those moments when he takes the time to connect with another human being are so satisfying in this film, especially when you get to the end of the movie and you kind of realize where he's really at, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, so we should point out he is leaped into, we're going to just call it that, uh, on the train, he is replacing Sean Fentress, who is a teacher. And we know that him yeah. and uh, uh, him and uh, uh, Christina, they have known each other for some time. There, there's been some flirtation. There's some interest in each other. Uh, although Christina is still being contacted by an ex-boyfriend, um, who, her, her her phone rings like early in each loop, like a phone call from him. Um, yeah, and we and so, we learn we learn that it's not just a boyfriend; that it's her boss. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, which is which is even makes things more interesting, you know, yeah. because she's because we learn also that she's decided not only is she broken up with this guy, but she decided to quit her job as well. Oh yeah, you know. Oh, which is cool. Again, yeah, rings kind of different in twenty twenty one. Anyway, right? Did did you have this up because this crossed my mind when I was watching it this last time, and I think it came up when 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 Coulter says you're a good person or whatever. Yeah, and given Jake Gyllenhaal's frenetic energy in this. At any point earlier in the movie, did you think the twist was going to be that he had leaped into the bomber? Yes. There was a moment where I, I did indeed think that. Um, you know, it was... It, the, one of the things that made... Um, not difficult, that's the wrong word. Um, that made the film a little dense was the fact that you're not proffered an explanation for the specifics of what the project is like. Sure. Um, we're, you know, we're given the rules at some point, but then we're immediate, the, those rules are kind of immediately undercut by, I think by Coulter's own um, insistence that, that they're not, that they're not right. Um, which is interesting. And, and, and so as a result of that, yeah, it definitely made me wonder, like, uh, is, is Sean 
the bomber. Like, is that because there are because there are moments and in interactions between him and Christina where Christina says something that makes you kind of wonder, like, you know, OK, she doesn't really know this guy that well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what could be, you know, the, the what's really going on here? Who is this guy? Because we don't end up learning a lot about him. You know, nope. throughout the course of the of the film, uh, you know, he's kind of just this cipher, you know, this this empty vessel in a lot of ways to to pour Coulter into. Um, but uh, yeah, I did have that. I did have that suspicion uh, at one point. I was like, yeah. oh man, is he the bomber? Yeah, because I think that would have been. And this is I, we're giving a spoiler here. That would have been a horrible twist. Like I think I would have not enjoyed oh, yeah. the movie that much because like it would have been too predictable. Right. You know what I mean? Um, right. So anyway, so to 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 wrap up the spoiler free section. So he goes through a number of loops to find who the bomber is finding the nature of the reality of, of the source code of the, of the, the, the section of reality that he's reliving, but also learning what his true nature is in the present. Yeah. Now in his life. And I think the movie has a very satisfying ending. I remember the first time I saw it, I, I was kind of scratching my head a little bit. Um, because I think, I mean, the ending is kind of uh, thrown at you in the last five minutes. The explanation is a little bit rushed. You have to right. think about it for a little bit. And I don't know if I was fully on board with the ending when I first saw it or if I thought it was a little bit too uh, Hollywood happy ending-esque. Sure. But on the whole, I think I'm pretty satisfied with the ending. Yeah. I would say so, especially as I, you know, as I got a little distant, I, I watched it Saturday afternoon and we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. So I've had a few days to kind of sit with it. Um, as I had mentioned earlier uh, on the podcast and to you last night uh, before the gig, I was like, well, I am not going to do a lot of research. I'm not going to do, I, I really just want to be able to take my time to think my own thoughts through and, and give kind of my, you know, my visceral reaction to the film. Uh, and part of the reason why is because overwhelmingly I, I feel incredibly positive towards it. Um, you know, I might have a couple of nitpicks here or there, but ultimately, um, I was, I was very satisfied with the ending. And as I think more on the ending, um, it becomes, it becomes enough of an open book that I feel like I'm able to kind of write my own real finish in a way, you know what I mean? As a viewer. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I always really like that and not in the way that like in a film that you could easily kind of make some comparisons to, although they don't have a lot directly in common, but you could easily make some comparisons with inception that I feel like inception really, you're just left with the, a binary kind of question. Do you know what I mean? Is this the real world or is this the Inception world? And I think as a result of that, uh, Inception for me is not necessarily, I I don't know. It's a film that I, like, I cherished seeing Inception in theaters. I I, I think, like, seeing that movie the first time was an incredible experience, and I do think it's a remarkable film. But because you're left with that kind of binary question at the film at the end, where it's like, is this the real world or is this not the real world? It's just, it's, it's sort of like, it becomes almost a piece for debate and argument as opposed to a piece of art that I get to really kind of write my own ending to. And I feel like the neat thing about Source Code is, is in some ways, you know, there are certain little nuanced 
pieces of the ending that I think as an engaged viewer, I get to kind of write my own ending to. And I really appreciate that about it. I would agree. Uh, I wouldn't have made a direct comparison with Inception, but like in reading up on this, I saw other comparisons to it. Actually, I saw the, you know, uh, one writer thought that this is actually a superior movie to Inception because it's it's not overly complicated. It doesn't try to be more than what it is. And it's interesting, like reading some, like some fan theories on like what they think the ending actually is makes me appreciate a little bit more. Like you said, um, it gives you more of an opportunity to write your own ending, but it's it's trying not to be so Chris Nolan about it. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Which you know, I, I mean, I like I like Chris Nolan's work. I haven't seen Tenet yet, um, but uh, I, I like his work a lot. Uh, you know, I remember seeing the um, Memento for the first time and just being just in love with that movie. And to the point that, uh, when the special edition DVD came out, like I had to get it because one of the Easter eggs on the special edition DVD is the movie, like in the correct order, if you will, sure. uh, yeah. in linear order. And I, and I was just like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta see how this all fits together. And it's, it's interesting because of course it does fit together, but the film was far more, you know, vastly more interesting in the, in the original order that, that Nolan put it in, as opposed to trying to put it in sort of, sort of, you know, linear chronological order. Um, and what, and what I love about that, and I'm sure you probably know this, is that it took him years to figure that out. Yeah. Because he had this story idea that was based on, I think, a, a short story that his brother had written. But he could not figure out how to make that story interesting on film. And it took it years for it to click like, oh, I need to tell the story in reverse. Well, you know, and it's fascinating because, like, the, again, I think the movie does work in, like, a linear chronological order. Sure. But, again, it's, it is and, – and this is not to imply that the film is a gimmick film because I don't – I do think his films do rise above their gimmicks. But the gimmick is one of the things that does make the film so incredibly interesting and, and just makes it, makes it work. And I would say, um, yeah, watching it, watching it forward or linear – you know, the way it's chronologically, that only works if you've seen the movie the first way. Right. I, oh, yeah. You totally. know, if, if you are really a fan of the movie and you want to see it, I don't think it would work that way watching it for the first time. No, no. I think, yeah, I think it's the, the, the fact that it's not only an extra feature on the DVD, but that it's an Easter egg that you it's have to hidden. search out. Yes, I remember. Yeah, yes. Like, yeah. That to me is indicative of kind of like Nolan's sort of idea that's like, no, this is the movie. This is just that sort of hidden special feature that if you really want to see, I'd like you to be able to see it this way. Um, and then, of course, you know, the Batman movies, I, I you know, I, I think Batman Begins is probably the best, you know, filmed uh, origin story that we'll ever get of the character. I think The Dark Knight is probably one of the best, you know, superhero films we'll ever see with just incredible performances. And um, and then I, I'm, I, I actually love The Dark Knight Rises. I think it's the perfect coda to the to that series. I think that in, in some ways, I think as a as a film, it might be my favorite of the three, believe it or not. Um it doesn't have the propulsive energy that the Dark Knight has. It doesn't have the, you know, the towering, you know, Heath Ledger performance. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily have the, uh, uh, the, the, the sort of crafted story that Batman Begins might have. But there's something about Dark Knight Rises that just, 
as a, as a film and knowing that one of the things that he took was a lot of inspiration from sort of those, you know, those, those seventies movies like French connection and taking a Pelham one, two, three, and like, you know, those kind of movies in order to, to craft, I think it just works so well as that sort of, you know, gritty kind of like seventies urban crime film, uh, but in a, you know, in a very different light. So, I, I've always enjoyed it. Um, and then, of course, you know, more more recently, you know, we we mentioned Inception and Tenet. Uh, the Prestige is another film of his that I love. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he's just he's he's a great director and and, and I think has made some really uh, uh, wonderful films over over the years. Um, and I'm always interested to kind of see what he's going to do next. So on that note, should we jump into wrap up the spoiler free version and jump into the weeds here? Let's do it. So for the purposes of discussion, I don't know if we need to do like a, a play-by-play, blow-by-blow, loop-through-loop of this. Just like hit the highlights of, of like the big plot sections of the movie and our interpretation of them. Yeah. Does that sound right? Does that sound fair? Absolutely. So I think, yeah, I think so. So here's my first question for you. Do you think the first loop that we see, because the movie starts off, with Coulter waking up on the train. Do you think that that's his first time through the loop? No. Really? No. Yeah, I think I think that I think that he's had some other times through. I've the, always, the, and, yeah. And the main reason I say that is because the I, I think that there are there are moments inside the the capsule, if you will, and his interaction with uh, Goodwin that I feel like. I feel as though there's, um, you know, there's, there's an established like relationship or history there between the two of them. I don't think that it's just like pre-programmed into his brain or anything, um, by the project that they've kind of like, you know, they've, they've sent him in there and this is his first time, you know, coming out and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And they say a few code words and now all of a sudden he's like, oh, right. I remember you, but he doesn't actually remember her. So I feel like that there's... That there is something there, yeah. <clears throat> See, I've always interpreted it as this was this was his first time through the loop. Like he's like he's done some training. Mm. He's met Goodwin, and and to the point okay. like, where, where like they they give him the phrase. I can't remember the phrases like right off the top of my head, but like they give him the phrases to kind of like trigger and the cards to trigger his memory, and that is to the trigger the memory that Goodwin has met. Like Goodwin has given him a briefing before of what his mission was, but I yeah. Oh, but I felt like this was his first time through the loop. That's how I interpreted it. But I could see how it could not be. Yeah. I, you know, and I, and I get, and see, and I think that that's one of the wonderful things about the movie because I could absolutely see your side too. Like I, I, I don't think that your interpretation is wrong. You know what I mean? Um, I, like there are some films or, or television shows that you see and you're just sort of like, you get a vibe from it and you know, that you know, you don't know, but you think that that's the right thing. And if somebody says something different than that, you're just sort of like, no, you're wrong. Yeah. You know, whereas in this case, I'm just sort of like, no, I, you I, that could be, and I could see that. And not only could I see that, but I don't think it makes me wrong and it doesn't necessarily make you right. right. And it doesn't make either idea bad or good. Or, it's just, yeah. it's just that wonderful opportunity to interpret a piece of art and gain Different. something from both perspectives. Yeah. And we can all still like each other at the end of the day. And we- <laughs> now here's the thing that I missed the first time I saw the movie. I don't know how I missed it. I don't know if I wasn't paying attention or what it was, but the first time I saw it in the theater, I missed him seeing his own reflection anywhere. I don't know how I missed I, it. 
I don't know how I miss it. Uh, what I remembered, because it was like five years between the first and second time I saw it, what I remembered was later on in the movie and him going into the train station and him looking in the mirror and reacting to it, but us not actually seeing the reflection back. So mm. I thought that the director was intentionally trying not to give us that because they were trying to avoid a quantum leap moment. Because looking in the mirror and seeing someone else is very definitely a quantum leap thing. Totally. And, and it, you know, it's interesting because I actually almost missed the the first one uh, as well in, in the window. Um, you know, it was just one of those moments where, because it is kind of a blinking you'll miss it moment. Uh, and I think that to its credit, it, you know, it doesn't dwell on it. And it's, it, it, it's his reaction that is more important. Than, than us really seeing it that first time. I uh, should mention that the mirror image is played by Frédéric de Grand Prix, uh, who's a uh, Quebec actor um, that I'm assuming they just probably found, you know, locally. Local because source, it should yeah. be mentioned the film was, yeah, the film was Most filmed in, Montreal. in yeah. Montreal. Yeah. The thing I appreciate about that is that obviously they couldn't do this on Quantum Leap because, you know, they didn't have the, the technology for the special effects. I think that's almost more unsettling, like catching your reflection mm. in a window or, or something shiny. That's even more disorienting than a full-on look in an actual mirror. Right. You know? Yeah. One thing, too, that I will appreciate, you know, to kind of talk a little bit about some of the Quantum Leap parallels is that the the leap-in effect is and it's got to be intentional based off of what we know about Duncan Jones and his interpretation of kind of the script and finding those parallels. The, the, the leap in effect, if you will, is strikingly similar to the very first leap in, in Genesis where the camera kind of zooms in really quick on wherever he is. And, and every, like the first like two or three times you go to the train, it gets faster actually, which is kind of interesting, but I think it's the last time in particular that they do this with the leap in it, it, it is so reminiscent of Sam's first leap in in Genesis. Sure. You know, where they, they get that zooming really super fast house. zoom yeah. in into the house. Yeah. And see him on the uh, on the bed. Um, and then, of course, you got the mirror image, uh, like you said, as well. Uh, and, and, you know, and Gyllenhaal plays the disorientation so wonderfully. Um, and, and it inspires some really like great moments early on where he's trying to figure out what the hell is happening and he's just honest and it's like i'm sorry i don't know you you know say anything and the, the funny thing is is you get the idea that like he that 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 sean ventress who he's leapt into is is enough of kind of like a mystery to christina uh and yet also seems to have a sense of humor that she just thinks he's like joking around for oh, yeah. the most part you know she kind of goes with it kind of another parallel um, to the pilot of quantum leap. Right. Because, yeah, because of Tom Stratton. Has a, a very, has a very a... similar reputation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that, that becomes even more interesting is the ways that he starts to navigate each loop when he's convincing her to kind of, like, help him out. Like, sure. let's play a game. Yeah. You know, let's make up stories about the passenger. You know, it, it, like, he, it, it's really much like Sam, you know, when he's on a leap and he's trying to find out the ways to get the information he needs and he has to kind of invent, you know, new methods of investigation, if you will. Uh, it's it, it, The fascinating thing is that, and it's a testament to, to the, the screenplay, and to Duncan Jones and to Jake Gyllenhaal in particular, that he's able to balance like these high stakes with a sort of playful quality as well. And I don't just mean playful as in like, you know, he's always kind of playing, but that, but 
that there is like this playful nature to some of the loops where he's trying to kind of figure out like, you know, okay, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And then it's, it's contrasted so well with the loops where he's like, he, he knows how he's going to do it this time. Like I, this is, I'm doing this, 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 this is point A, point B, point C. Like, it's like, he has everything mapped out Mm -hmm. and then, you know, he gets to the point where it's just sort of like, okay, what's different this time? Um, here's a question I have for you. Uh, what, not that we couldn't talk more about the loops, obviously, but what are your thoughts on his capsule experiences? And, you know, when he comes out of the loops after the explosion, well, I mean, I mean, of course it's, you know, the capsule is his interpretation, like how he's making sense of what his reality is. Uh, and I had forgotten rewatching the movie this time that it takes three or four loops and and something that he drops for uh, Goodwin and Rutledge to figure that out, like what he's experiencing on the inside mm, of that. Mm, that's and, right, yeah. Um, I had forgotten that when he comes back one time, there's like hydraulic oil leaking somewhere. And another time he yeah. comes back, like things are frozen and the capsule is shutting down and he's losing life support. And a... Um, and a theory that I read that, that I hadn't thought about, and I think it's a wonderful theory, um, it's b- that the reason why the, the capsule, quote, is malfunctioning is that happens in times when he goes further off of the loop than the original history. Oh, so, interesting. So, so, so to sum up, in case you, and you missed it, if it's been a while since you have watched it, uh, listener, it's the way the source code works is that everybody keeps like the last roughly eight minutes of their reality in their short-term memory. After you die, apparently your energy or whatever that is from your, your, your brain, it's just floating out into the ether and project source code is able to harness that pull all of those collective short-term memories in from everybody who was on the train, compile those memories, put them into a computer program and we can get a rough idea of what the last eight minutes of everybody on that train was like given all of their collective last eight minutes of their life but the two times where the capsule seriously quote malfunctions he goes seriously off of those loops he goes off of the train twice and it kind of begs the question of like how does that reality work because if it's based on and i'm sure like they're pulling in like actual like you know data on like you know the the metro rail and the train stations and the other people around blah 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 but when he goes like off the train and he goes into the train station in one loop you know when he goes off and he finds the the bomb van later on where is that information being pulled from right. so a theory i read is like oh he's going further out of the program and that is not intended and that's what's causing his basically i mean his brain is shutting down he's dying that's what happens right that, that's what's happening when the capsule is malfunctioning and i thought that that was an interesting fan theory yeah that is interesting um you know not to kind of skip to the end but for me i think that as i've thought more and more about what the source code actually is and what the ending means and how I kind of decided to fill in the blank is that, you know, and, and, and there are, and, and I, I have contrary opinions to this as well. This is just kind of one thing that I'm sitting with right now is that the, you know, his consciousness has been plugged into the source code and as his, and, and to me, like I said, that's a really great theory and I love that. But to me, I, I wonder if 
part of it is also the fact that as he repeats these source codes again and again and again, he's becoming less involved with our reality and more involved with the source code and that the source code and and because he's able to make these changes that when he finally kind of succeeds, if you will, at the very end, that his consciousness now lives in the source code and that the source code is, 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 is creating this world and that he's, you know, that, 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 that is like, you know, that, that really, Another film you can kind of go with some parallels to is The Matrix. Like now he's basically living inside this simulated reality. Um, and, you know, and it begs questions too, where it's like, well, okay, he's, you know, there's all, we know that there's also a good one and a Rutledge and everybody else inside the simulated reality based on the end. So the idea then is, it's like, well, was the simulated, what was the reality that we took to mean to be the real thing early in the film, just another you know, variation of the source code to begin with, sure. which also kind of lends itself to that inception kind of comparison where it's like, is this, you know, a world within a world, within a world, within a world, within a world. And, and I think that, you know, to me, there's a, there's a logical side of my brain where that makes the most sense. Um, as opposed to the idea that he has literally created an alternate reality, an alternate timeline that he now exists in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that there is sort of this, uh, that his consciousness is, is alive, that he is in essence alive, but he's existing in this simulated reality as opposed to being in the real world. But there's no way of discerning, you know, what is real. It's, it's you know, kind of ask those those old ancient questions, you know, I think therefore I am as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, that this is some sort of real thing or, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's, um, but it's that, that to me, you know, makes me wonder if kind of going off what you're saying, if those malfunctions are just more because he's no longer supposed to exist in that world, his consciousness is becoming more and more tied to this like source code reality that's being built Mm, every time he changes something. That's which I think is similar to kind of what you're saying. Yeah. I think it's similar. The thing is, and like I said, you're not supposed to think too hard about this. The incongruity with that <laughs> is that there, like, there's the middle section of the movie that I had kind of forgotten about where um, they hook him in. Like, they get him really committed to his mission by playing him a recording of his dad. Like, talking oh, about right. like, mm-hmm. like how brave he was. And even though they had a fight because he wanted to go back to Afghanistan and do another tour. And he didn't quite understand that. And his dad embraced the fact, like, like, no, like, we didn't agree about this, but, but he was a hero. And that's how, how, that's how they hook him in and get him dedicated to the mission. After that, he goes through a series of several loops where we don't see. We just know that he fails time after time after time after time. But yet after that, the capsule is not malfunctioning. Right. A little bit of an incongruity. Um, it's like interesting, said, too. Don't think too hard about it, but... There's that, for what it's worth. But of course, you know, in the first Back to the Future movie, the DeLorean only freezes once. That's a good point. Look it up if you don't remember that reference. Anyway. Well, you know, one of the things, too, uh, that's interesting about the changes in the capsule is that they do seem almost... Not that not that the the fact that it's changing is arbitrary, but the changes themselves seem arbitrary. Like, okay, it's leaking hydraulic fluid. What are we supposed to get from that? Oh, you know, he's unable to unbuckle the, you know, the parachute harness or whatever, the straps in this one, but he finally does it in this one. Oh, now it's, you know, it's grown three times as big. Oh, now it's cold inside. Now it's this. And so there's this element where it's just sort of like, well, I 
I can draw conclusions about why the capsule is changing, but I don't necessarily know why specifically these are the ways that it's changing. And, um, and that's interesting. You know, I mean, certainly I can make some conclusions or whatever, but they don't seem to me to have as, as concrete a direction as some of these other, you know, ideas or notions do like, Oh, it's getting bigger because he's starting to feel smaller maybe, or, you know, Oh, it's cold because you know, what happens when we die, our bodies get cold. What, you know, like, sure. There are things, Oh, it's leaking hydraulic fluid. Oh, well, he's clearly lost a lot of blood. You know, like there's all these sorts of things that I can kind of, but, but I don't know that they have as direct a correlation to what's happening as the, the, very fact that it's that that it's just changing in general um so i find those interesting and something to maybe think a little bit more about and maybe people that have thought more about these you know specific elements of the film have ideas uh and i would love to you know i don't i I know that there's a um audio commentary uh, on the blu-ray i just did a you know a um rental of the of the film yeah uh and so i didn't hear the uh uh, audio commentary, but I do wonder kind of what they might've mentioned in the audio commentary about these specific moments. Um, because it is fascinating. And then of course, the other thing that becomes kind of chilling is that when you finally see what Goodwin sees compared Mm -hmm. to what Coulter is seeing. Sure. That like that made me uncomfortable. Like I was just like, Oh man, like, are you talking about his body specifically? No, actually, what I was talking about is that, uh, so when he communicates with Goodwin. Oh, like, just like, uh, the, ty- like the type, yeah. Yeah, that what she's seen is basically like an instant message, you know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, like, she's talking into a microphone and a, and a camera that are hooked into his brain, so he's experiencing, like, audio and visual, but for her, she's literally just seeing text, text messages. messages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just kind of, it's... Whew, uh, yeah, man. Yeah, I it it, it, it 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 just was chilling to me. It really was. I had forgotten that aspect of it, and I think that like combined with like what you see, like what uh, Coulter's body actually is now, uh, mm-hmm. all of that combined. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, when you see his body, I mean that is yeah. Which, yeah. by the way, was a working prosthetic. Which they had, which, I, yeah, which, which they that. had, which, which they had breathing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll I'll come back to the prosthetic and and, and everything later on. Um, now, here's the thing that I, I I never quite understood is that it seems like for him to get out of the loop, he has to die. Right. And like and like the one part of the movie plot wise that really does not make sense. So uh, at one point, he chases the character. Uh, uh, has me Derek character Frost. Name. Yeah. No, 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 no. At one point, he... Oh, uh, oh, like which is the Oh. Yeah. Uh, uh, has yes. Me, yeah. He uh, chases him off the train in a little bit of racial profiling, let's be honest. Oh, um, totally. <laughs> and he's just being, you know, he's just motion sick, and that's why he's acting all suspicious. But after he confronts him, gets his cell phone, gets his cell phone away, the bomb goes off anyway... He continues to attack him, which leads to him getting kicked onto the track, and him getting killed by another train is what kicks him out of the loop. Yeah. And I don't, I didn't quite get the reasoning of, like, why he had to die for the loop to end. Like, to me, I figured, like, as soon as the, the, the trains blew up, you know, boom, that's it. That ends the simulation. Why well, I think that that's, die? I think that that's our first clue as well as Coulter's first clue that... 
he can, he can change things and they'll have a lasting effect because that's the, that's the leap or loop uh, that, that, that can, for him is evidence that Christina lives. Sure. And you know, cause he comes back and he's like, and he's basically pleading with him. He's like, no, she's alive. I saved her. I did that. And it's kind of the first moment where Rutledge kind of starts to have a, you know, I think a little bit of a doubt too. You know, he, he, he pretty much sticks with the idea that's like, no, you can't change anything. No, it's not real. It's just, you know, it's, it's a simulacrum. It's, it's not, you know, it's, 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 it's not what you think it is. And that the, uh, uh, the fact that he was able to kind of exist a little bit beyond the explosion, I think is supposed to be a clue to us that it can, that it can carry on and yet not enough of one to kind of maybe confirm it because it does seem, it does seem to kind of like really empower Coulter in such a way that says, no, I can change things. I can affect things. I can, you know, I can make this work. Um, it is interesting though, because he does, he, you know, he, he lives, he does, you know, in all the other loops slash leaps, he basically gets pulled out when the explosion occurs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess a really, really, really fucked up morbid thought there is, is that perhaps in spite of being, you know, blown up on a train that, you know, Sean Fentress is, consciousness lived on for a few moments after the explosion. And that's one of the things that allowed him to, you know, to stay in, which is terrible and horrible. And I don't want to think about, but you know, (laughs) I guess it's also worth noting. I missed it. Like, uh, when his capsule really starts malfunctioning, he starts going cold. If I'm correct, that's right after the loop where he, where he learns that in, in real life, he has been reported dead in Afghanistan two days ago. Because uh, he's able to get Christina to to look up information about him, I love I love when he asks the question, "Do you have internet on your phone?" Yeah, that <laughs> that, that shows how far we've come in ten years. Like that's just a foregone yeah, conclusion right. now. Where then I was like, "Oh, yeah, that's right." Um, but yeah, you bring up an excellent point that yeah, that it maybe is proof. Like yeah, he he's kind of veering off and doing a little. He is creating a new alternate universe with every with every bit that he's going through. Also puts me in a little bit of mind. Uh, did you see the Netflix series from a couple of years ago, Russian doll? Ah, no, unfortunately we've talked about this before. We've yeah. not yet watched it, but uh, I, it, it, I, it's, it's kind of still on my to watch list. Uh, so yeah, basically plot like a uh, woman dies at a party and she gets set on like this, basically like groundhog day loop where at the end of every iteration she dies. But the thing is she doesn't always die the same way. And not at the exact same time. Sometimes she could live just a few minutes. Sometimes she could live like a day or two. But ultimately she ends up dying and then it takes her back to that same moment of coming to at the party that she that she's at when she dies. Um, So, yeah, it put me in mind of, of that as well. Other excellent thing you should check out. I think it's only eight episodes. It's a limited run. Um yeah. And it's one of those things, I think they were planning a second season, but the first season is its own wonderful self-contained story, and the end is just like this weird, out there, abstract, fucked up note that you're like, <laughs> all right, I, I can take this. Just just make it one self-contained, one season story. Anyway. Yeah. It's funny because if I'm not mistaken, Natasha Leone, who I think is wonderful, uh, I, I think that she had said at one point that there wasn't going to be a second season, but I know that it was approved for a second season. Like it got renewed, but I don't know. It doesn't, I, I, you know, it could just be that COVID has, Oh yeah. Yeah. It says right here that apparently 
production began on the second season in March of 2021 because it was delayed from March of 2020. So there will be uh, a season two. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, anyway, uh, no, I definitely want to see it. And again, I mean, she's someone that I really enjoy. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that it's it's worth my time. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so we keep going through this. Yeah. Uh, to me, uh, I felt like even the first time I saw the movie, like Derek Frost so hard tips his hat that he's the bad guy that mm. I, that I even when felt did, like that. I even felt like the first time I saw the movie, like the first time we saw him get approached by the other guy saying like, Oh, you forgot your wallet. Like even then I was like, ah, there he is. That's the guy. It's, you know, and it's funny because my suspicion, like I had suspicion about him from the first time we see him as well, but it was, it was very much, it was easy to dismiss until we see Coulter, watching the exchange. And when I saw that, that's when I was just sort of like, I bet that's the guy. And I will say that there was enough, you know, kind of bait and switch throughout the film that it, it never, it didn't ruin the film for me at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and that ultimately, you know, much, much like a Hitchcock film, frankly, the bomb is a MacGuffin, you know, and and Derek Frost is a MacGuffin. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, they could have shown us that this was the guy from the very beginning, and it wouldn't matter, because it's far more interesting to see, you know, Gyllenhaal go through these leaps and and, 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 and the personal story. And we haven't talked a whole lot about that, but, like, his own personal story and dealing with the... uh, I, I think that that's one of the remarkable things about his performance and one of the remarkable things about the film is he's a soldier. He is a soldier who doesn't know what's happened to his men. He doesn't know what's happened to his helicopter. He doesn't know what's happened to himself. You know, he's trying to find these things out. He's trying to deal with things in a somewhat disciplined manner. But he, as he becomes more and more emotionally involved, he drifts further and further away from that sort of disciplined military reality and more into a very, you know, visceral human uh, connection with the people around him, with Goodwin, with Christina, and of course, with his father. And the fact that, like, from the beginning of the film, he's asking to talk to his dad. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a real piece of the, you know, the, the whole arc of the film Mm. and, and and naturally the, you know, the climactic phone call, if you will, between father and son, um, which of course mirrors the phone call in Genesis, even to, uh, you know, Bacula has speaks some of the same exact words, uh, that his father speaks Mm -hmm. to him in Genesis. I can't remember now exactly what he says. Um, Something it's something like you know don't feel bad don't feel too bad about it or or whatever you know because he sure. because Sam says he's going to miss Thanksgiving he feels bad and then yeah. his father says something like don't you know don't beat yourself up over that or whatever and yeah. there's a there's an almost verbatim exchange between mm-hmm. um, you know Coulter, Coulter and his dad who of yeah. course is voiced by Scott Bakula uh, and it's I mean it's it's a it's a wonderful moment that you know the fascinating thing for me is it was fulfilling to see. I was not as emotionally engaged or uh, moved, I, maybe is what I should say. Um, I was not moved to tears. Sure. In the same way that I was when I see Genesis. Sure. And maybe part of that has to do with the fact that neither is Coulter. And I think part of it is, is it's like, y- you know, the, the stages of, of grief and everything. 
I think because when we see Sam make the phone call in Genesis, he's not calling for acceptance into his own, you know, demise or into his own. He's calling for kind of that, that affirmation. Sure. Whereas Coulter in a way is calling to close a chapter in a book. Whereas Sam is calling to kind of open the chapter. And for some reason that got me more choked up than, than this did. Than this exchange. Yeah. Um, So let's take a step back and how Scott Bakula came to be in this role. Uh, So like I I said earlier at the start, uh, when Duncan Jones came on, I don't know if Ben Ripley realized all the parallels to quantum leap, but Duncan Jones immediately saw it. And when he got to that phone call and he read that, he remembered the phone call from the pilot episode of Quantum Leap. So it was his idea to reach out to Scott Bakula and see if he would be interested in doing a cameo. And of course, Scott Bakula, wonderful sport. He was like, saw what they were doing, and he was glad to do it. Um, and even they, they managed to work an oh boy into the conversation. <laughs> and it was like something like they didn't know if it was going to work. They tried it a few different ways, and they, they felt like they ultimately reached one where it wasn't so obvious and hitting people over the head. And I think it worked, because I'm going to tell you that this is somewhat embarrassing, but I'm going to tell the story. I did not catch this when I first saw the movie. I did not catch the oh boy. I didn't even catch it with Scott Bakula. Even with the extended voice cameo that he has earlier in the movie when they play the recording of Coulter's father. Totally missed it. Uh, Like I said earlier... This was the last movie that I saw in the theater with the woman I was dating at the time. As the movie wrapped up, as the credits were rolling, she's like, wait, 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 wait. I want to see something. I think something. I want to see if it's right. And then the credits came along, and then when it got to the voice of Colt's father, she's the one who pointed out Scott Bakula yeah. on the screen. Yeah. Like, I realized the parallel as I was watching the movie, but I did not catch that it was Scott Bakula's voice. <laughs> so I would say they did a damn good job of sliding that in there, but not making it obvious. Well, and you know, I, I think on top of that, like it is not an easy thing to do what Scott Bakula does in this film, which is convey so much just with his voice and not in any sort of, you know, I like I, I've spoken a little bit before about how I, you know, I do prefer, you know, very natural, you know, just honest, truthful performances. And oftentimes in voice acting, especially, you know, if you take a voice acting class, if you're in a booth with, you know, with the wrong director, they will basically tell you to overact. They will basically tell you that you need to do this so that people get this from your voice when they hear it or whatever. Scott Bakula, thankfully, does not do any of that. Mm-hmm. He just behaves honestly and truthfully, mm-hmm. and he gets so much across, you know, from the interview snippet to the phone call. And it's just so natural and so wonderful, and, and it works so beautifully, especially because he, you know, we, we, I, I talked earlier about how Goodwin is kind of like the emotional tether uh, for Coulter in a lot of ways but that the ultimate tether for him is his dad. And when we get the interview snippet, uh, it's everything you need to know. 
You know, it's just that's that's the story right there. That's the emotional investment that you need to have in, in both Coulter and his dad and the relationship with the dad. And it's, um, you know, and, and again, it's just lovely. And it's lovely that there's it's not you know, it's it's weird because even though it's there are repeated mentions, I never felt like I was being beat over the head with it. I never felt like it was like about his dad. Like there's so much going on that when he does make those kind of planted pleas to just say, you know, like, I, I want to talk to my dad. They're, they're almost, almost could be a throwaway, you know? Mm-hmm. And yet, again, that's kind of the, the emotional core of the story and sure. his character. Yeah. And I will say, I think one of the reasons why I missed it the first time is I forgot. Like, it, it's not just a straight up, you're not just watching the phone call. The phone call is intercut with Goodwin getting up from her seat and right. going in and the reveal of what Coulter actually is now. And yeah. I think that's why I missed it the first time is that it's like it, it's intercut with this also other big reveal of like, oh, this is what this is what's really going on. Yeah. OK. Um, let's talk. Let, you know what? Let's 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 talk about, about the that. body. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah he, he dead. He dead. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he, he's mostly dead. Um, right. You know, earlier in the movie he kind of makes the assumption that Goodwin must have been through the program herself since she is facilitating it now. And she says, I'm not a very good, I wouldn't be a good candidate. Well, what makes a good candidate? And it's all, like I said, it's all the things of like what you don't say. You see it all on the actor's face. Uh, Like you can almost tell like in that moment that you know that Coulter has met some kind of bad end. And right. So, yeah, uh, to qualify for source code, you have to be pretty much mostly dead. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's pretty much with part of the idea being is that, you know, much like Rutledge explains that, you know, the, the, the last eight minutes of consciousness are, you know, out there for us to kind of get into and tap into. Basically, the idea being that the you know, that, that the subject who can be put in is basically in that condition as well. That, slate, that, yeah. that, you know, that you're kind of like a blank slate. And there's, you know, there's even a point in the movie where he says, we're going to erase his memory and start over again. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, and you know what? I, I will say whew. this. It would have been a satisfying twist to me if we had found out that this was not Coulter's first mission. Yeah, I agree. I kind of almost wish they had gone that route. You know, I, to be completely honest with you, I think you can go that yeah. route in, and I, in your I, mind. You and know? I, I, well, no, and this is why it doesn't work. And I think now that I say this out loud, this is why I think it... Oh, God, I mean, you can go so many different ways with it. Because if you, if you sign on with the idea that Coulter really has created an alternate reality in the end... And that he is going to continue on living as Sean Fentress. And you get that last scene where Rudledge says, like, oh, man, we were so close. This one incident, it got averted. But, you know, one day source code is going to have its moment to shine. I think it's a satisfying twist to see, like, oh, man, we keep almost getting here to get get this thing. But then we find out, like, oh, no, uh, not this one. Source code doesn't work because Rudledge never thinks source code works because the past keeps getting averted. And so there's this thing of like, they use it all the time, but he doesn't think so from his point of view. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. You know, it's funny because as you're talking about it too, I'm kind of left with the fact that it's like, yeah, it couldn't be, it couldn't be his, his, you know, this is his first time. And part of that I think has to do with the fact that we, you know, maybe, maybe there was, you know, there were some tests or whatever, but I think that just with the proximity of the, the train explosion to his crash the helicopter crash that, that, you know, in essence killed him to where we are now to, it feels as though there wouldn't have been an opportunity to do this before. And there certainly wouldn't have been any successful opportunity. You know, again, there could have been some tests, sure. but we know that this is the first time it's been a success because, you know, Rutledge is, is celebrating it and, yeah. and mm-hmm. you know, is like, we're going to, you know, we're going to erase his memory and send him back in and do, you know, do more. Um, yeah, I, I, it, but but I do think that had they you know, with some changes that that it could have been possible you know if this is somebody who'd been dead for like two years or whatever as opposed to like I think it's a month like two months or something like something like that yeah yeah like two months um, yeah. yeah so it's I don't know it it, it, it would have been interesting I think that I think that Goodwin would have had more of a relationship with him if that were the case. Mm -hmm. And I also think that based off of what we learn about Goodwin's character, I don't know if she would have been okay with it. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like, I I think that if, had there been any kind of inclination that, uh, that they had had an opportunity to kind of build any sort of relationship prior to this, I don't think she would have been okay with kind of just keeping him alive. So, sure. Um, (sighs) yeah, the, you know, the one thing that I will say and and it's interesting to note that about seven years ago, it got greenlit for a sequel, mm-hmm. that Ben Ripley was writing a sequel, that uh, Anna Foster, I believe, had signed on to direct. Uh, but that's it. There hasn't been anything else. If you go to IMDb, it's still listed as in pre-production. You know, if you, if, you know, I, I don't know if there's been anything said about it since then i don't believe there has but it is interesting to note that there was talk of a sequel uh i have a feeling that if there were a sequel it would not involve any of the original cast with the exception maybe of jeffrey wright yeah probably i would agree with that even before and i couldn't find any i I feel like there there are a lot of articles that i read years ago that i could not find when i was preparing for this but i remember reading them um even before the the movie there was it was going to be a tv show Mm. um and I would love to have seen that because basically, I mean, I'm sure it would have ended up being, you know, like uh, kind of a quantum leap, but not being quantum leap. And I know like yeah. Yeah, the, the movie's been sitting out there in pre-production for seven years, but I have a feeling if it was going to happen by now, probably would right. have happened. Um, and I have a feeling that they're going to do it. I mean, given Hollywood's proclivity to just reboot everything, I have a feeling they would just do another variation on an origin story instead of a sequel. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, is that this is, to me, I, the concept is such that I don't know that I would want to see it repeated. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like the idea of a, you know, of a, of a show like source code, I could get behind, you know, the idea that somebody is kind of you know, leaping into these loops and having to kind of try to affect some sort of change or whatever is interesting to me. However, I think the gravity of the situation of knowing what the leaper has to have gone through in order to be the leaper, I don't know that that's a world that I want to exist in again, or certainly on a televised basis. 
Do you sure. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, f- I feel as though that, that there's something a little too... The, the, one of the reasons why the ending is so perfect to, to me is that we, you know, we, we pretty much know for a fact that his body is dead. Like, she has pulled the plug. He is now dead. Mm. For sure. However, his consciousness, I believe, in my opinion, is living on in this source code reality that he helped create by, you know, fixing everything. Mm. By getting the closure with his father with the phone call. By, you know... um, going off with Christina to the cloud gate. Like I, I, to me, it's such a, it's such a wonderful ending for the character and for the film in general that I don't think you can replicate that. And I think that's also part of the reason why I wouldn't necessarily be fully on board with a sequel or certainly not on board with a TV show. Yeah. I would agree with all that. So here's the thing about the end. You can interpret it in three ways. One, we take Coulter at his word and he has created truly an alternate reality. And that's the reality that we're living in. Two, like you've said, basically he's, he's created his own reality with inside a source code. Not a true alternate reality. He's just a simulation within a simulation. And now, like the, the, the Goodwin and the Redledge that we see at the end of the movie, they are, they are inside the source code. They are not like the real flesh and blood Goodwin and Redledge. Or here's another theory that I read yesterday as I was preparing. What we see, because like everything freezes... Mm-hmm. As she brings, as, as that loop ends and, um, and she turns off life support for good one. We're frozen for a moment. We have this like, you know, they, you know, make, 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 making the most of your last moments, blah, 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 beauty, 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 something <laughs> somewhere. The, the, the spirit of, of Kevin Spacey and American beauty, you know, he, he masturbates because it's very similar kind of feel kind of thing to like the end of American beauty. Right, right, right. But then after that, what if this is Coulter's afterlife? Mm. Like, whereas just as he created his own reality of the capsule to make sense of everything that was going on, everything after the unfreezing going to the cloud gate with Christina is actually his, his version of the afterlife. It's the reality he's yeah. created to make sense of everything. You know, the interesting thing about that, too, is the very use of the cloud gate. And the reason why I think that it's a brilliant image to be left with, because I think that it can, it can support, it can literally support everything you just said, all three of those possibilities. One, it's the cloud gate, you know, oftentimes heaven is, 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 Mm. you know, the, uh, related to clouds, the sky, et cetera, Mm. the gate, the cloud gate, you're crossing over into the afterlife. The, uh, idea that this is living on in the source code, that it's a reality within a reality. The cloud gate creates multiple reflections when you stand underneath of it, mm-hmm. you know, so it's reflecting in upon itself, which is exactly what the source code would do if he's living on in it. It's basically this, 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 you know, it, it, it can't exist without the source code, but it can't exist without the reality that, you know, blah, 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 it, it carries on and on and on. Um, and then this actual physical reality, uh, is that he's able to observe all of that within the cloud gate so that it, you know, that, that, that as an observer, he's observing and seeing all of these things. So it must be kind of the real, the real world, Like he's in the real world and everything else is out there in existing in this other world, which he sees in the cloud gate. So I feel like Duncan Jones, you know, for him, that was very important. And that was one of his like ways into the film. He's, 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 uh, said in interviews. And, and, and I think that that's kind of fascinating. And it's one of the, I'm so glad you brought it up because it's, it is to me, 
it is kind of the keystone. And it's that thing that you look at and you're just sort of like, fuck, it can allow me to go whichever direction I want to go. If I want to say this is reality, this is real life, then yes, he's standing there on solid ground looking into infinity, you know, which exists out there. It's not the real world where he's grounded. I can also say, no, he's crossing over into the afterlife, the cloud gate. He's going through underneath, you know, holding her hand. Like, yes, Mm. he's going into the afterlife. Or I can say, oh, he's looking in and seeing, you know, reflection upon reflection upon reflection upon reflection, which is the source code. You know, the source code, each one of these simulations exists for real. They just happen to end with the explosion, but this is one that didn't. So it's going to go on forever into infinity. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's fascinating to be able to use that piece of architecture, that object which exists in our real world that we can go to as that kind of keystone, which can allow our brains as the audience to come up with these endings and legitimize them, all of them. Nothing, you know. I, I think that no one is is wrong in their interpretation of of the film and of the ending, which I think is just again, it's the reason why Inception is brilliant. I love it, but at the end of the day, it really has a binary answer. It's either the real world or not the real world. There's not really much else left up for debate. In this film, I feel like it goes beyond that a little bit. Now, here, after all that being said, here's oh, why. <laughs> Here's why I'm going to say I'm going to take it literally and that he has actually created a true alternate reality Yeah, where everything goes on. Because it doesn't end from his perspective. The last shot of the movie is not him looking up at the cloud gate and with him and Christine and his seeing Sean's reflection. It's not him like walking under the cloud gate, like you said. The last shot of the movie is from Goodwin's perspective – getting the the text message or the email saying, you know, by the time you get this, you're going to hear about this failed terrorist attack, whatever. Um, If I'm right, you have Coulter Stevens with you. Do me a favor. Tell him everything is going to be okay. The last shot of the movie is her opening the drawer and us saying his body. Right. Once again, with the voiceover of tell him everything is going to be okay. So to me, from my perspective, since that's the last shot of the movie, since that's where we end... To me, that's the answer. So, okay. So if that's the case, which again, I think is completely valid and I'm not going to sit here and like argue and be like, no, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. But if that is the case, then how do we feel about poor Sean Pinterest? Because he's basically been erased from reality. He has been being John Malkovich. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In that reality. But I'm saying, like, if you take it that literally, the way I've interpreted the movie is that... That, every time, that, that, that it sits every beside... Time, yeah, that every time through the loop, yeah. they've actually spun off an alternate reality. So that there are right. a ton of realities out there where the train still exploded and different variations on it. Yeah. But now they spin off this one alternate reality where they were managed to avert the attack. And yeah, and in this reality... Sean Fentress is probably his personality is probably suppressed, you know, underneath. I mean, you know, I don't know. I would go so far as to say it just doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. That 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 much like when Sam leaps in, you know, it's like and the thing is, is the thing that's different from when Sam leaps in. We never get any hint or inkling whatsoever that Sean Fentress Fentress is under there. Like we never see any. There's no. yeah. Yeah. 
Like it is, it is 100% Coulter Stevens. Yeah. I'm basing that off of, uh, like being John Malkovich, like we just referenced, uh, an episode sure, of sure, uh, sure, Star sure. Trek, the next generation. I can't remember the title, but it's the one where, uh, the, the spirits on the planet kick out Troy and O'Brien and data. And afterward, right. and afterwards they talk about how, like they were still in there. They could still observe everything. They were just pushed to the side. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like basing it on that. Like, Oh, he's still in there. He can still see everything. But he's just not in control anymore, right? Um, I don't know. That's that, that's a deep and heady thing, but yeah. I mean, I'm just pulling this out of my ass as we're talking here. Since for <laughs> me, the last shot of the movie ends on Goodwin and Coulter's body. To me, I think that's that's the reality. We have now we have spun off into a new reality where source code does not get its moment in the sun, as Rutledge says, because the crisis was averted. And to me, we're setting up this series of things of where, like, they, they, they never think that they succeed. Well, no, that's not right. There is a reality out there where uh, Rutledge does succeed, and this was the first successful mission. She turns off his life support. That universe continues to go on. The movie just ends with us seeing another universe that we see where the terrorist attack is averted. Does that make sense? Yeah. Multiple timelines are a time fuck, a mind fuck. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and to be fair, even though I do firmly believe the film is open to interpretation and that it, 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 it succeeds in an artistic way of not discounting or making any one particular interpretation exclusive. It it should be worth noting that for Duncan Jones, his own personal interpretation of the film is that it is indeed an alternate reality that has been created um, Mm. by uh, a Coulter and that not only has Coulter created this alternate reality and he lives on in Sean's body, but the, the reason why he's allowed to do that basically is because Sean is dead. Because Sean did die in the explosion. And so, you know, Sean's consciousness has basically been taken out of reality because he died in the explosion. But, mm, you know, Coulter's okay. able to live on in it um, because he was in it when he, you know, when he kind of took over, when he leaped in. Sure. Um, and that, you know, and that there were a couple of, of, of uh, much like what you said, because of the way the film ends, because it ends on... Vera Farmiga on Goodwin, you know, seeing and and the funny thing is, is like it ends with her character looking in and seeing Coulter there, and the last thing we see is Coulter is you yeah. know is, is is Coulter in the tank. Um. So yeah, I you know again, for 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 whatever that's worth. Uh, now, of course, the fascinating thing is, is that if we take that to be literally true, that means that Coulter is basically existing in two places at once in this alternate reality. He exists as Sean Fentress, and he also exists as the body at Project Source Code. And in a sequel, just imagine what they could do with that. Now that is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting to think about. That is interesting, because imagine Rudledge finds out the the truth, and now he wants to go recruit Stevens by way of Sean Fentress. Right? Interesting. So much potential for sequel, which maybe we, we will or we won't get. Probably won't at this point. Right. 
you know. Yeah. Jake's got all that MCU money to, to swim in now, so. Oh. <laughs> not, not that that seems to have ever really mattered to him. He does not seem For like sure. a money guy. He seems much more about, like, you know, wanting to work on projects he wants to work on. But yeah. uh, And not that everybody who works in the MCU is loaded now. You know what I mean? Like, I, oh, sure. I say that a lot. It's it's more just a kid because, you know, when, when, when a movie's making over a billion dollars, you know, and yeah. these actors are being paid, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 million dollars for their, for their role. Sure. And somewhere, it's hard not to, you know. You know, somewhere out there, there's a parallel, you know, like in, in the first or second episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier when Sam goes to the bank asking for a loan and the, and the, and the lender's like, but, but like you're an Avenger, like, like don't, don't think right. you'd be funded. I feel like the same way with actors in the MCU, you know, like later on, like, you know, they're doing cameos or whatever. They're like, Hey, but, but like, aren't you set for life? Like, right. Right. You were Hawkeye. Like what? You were Mysterio. What's going on? Like, why, <laughs> why do you, why do you need money? Um, yeah. Two bits, yeah, two bits of trivia that, that we missed as we were going that I thought were interesting to take note. You talk about how Jake Gyllenhaal does a wonderful job of looking disoriented. Part of that may have been uh, part of Duncan Jones's uh, directing style in this movie is that he actually had an earpiece in Jake Gyllenhaal's ear, ear uh, throughout filming the train scenes. Yeah. Where he would occasionally play, like, disoriented music or radio static or something. Like, basically, he was trying to trigger, like, a disorientation. Um in Jill Hall's performance. Um, and also, I don't know if you saw the bit of trivia about uh, the bomb van later on in the movie. So uh, originally, they, oh, originally yeah. they were supposed to have filmed the, the Glenbrook station scene at an actual station, but they had some kind of falling out or misunderstanding with the Canadian railways. So they had to build that station from scratch at the last minute. And because of that, they did not have an opportunity to actually put the bomb van together. So in that scene, when uh, Derek opens the case inside the van, the only thing that is real in that scene, the only object that is real, is the case that he opens up. All of the stuff around the walls of the van is actually CGI'd in. Yeah. Which was it like, I wouldn't know. No, no, neither would I. And that's one of the things, too, that people have said about Duncan Jones in general is that he is, you know, he's which is kind of fascinating that he's not had, you know, a, a more prolific career. But I mean, again, you know, it's he's, he's one of those people where it, it's clear that he has an artistic flair and, and a vision and, and a good sense of direction and pacing, etc. Uh, but he's also one of those people that if he had never wanted to work a day in his life, he wouldn't have had to because of who his father was. Sure. Uh, but but that said, like, it is interesting to think that he hasn't had a more prolific career because it's always been said that his visual style and his incorporation of special effects is, you know, is really like top of the line. Mm. Um, one of the things that did get said actually, when I was reading a review of Warcraft is that they compared Warcraft to the Hobbit films in so much, not, not necessarily, you know, like a direct comparison could be made sure, but more with director. And the idea being that, um, Duncan Jones is the type of director that on like his first two kind of big outings being Moon and Source Code, he proved that he was adept with special effects, but that the storytelling was what was important, uh, much like Peter Jackson did with the first Lord of the Rings trilogy. But then when he got to The Hobbit, it was all about, you know, bloated special effects and there was no real heart or core of the story. And that was kind of what happened with Duncan Jones and Warcraft, apparently, is that, you know, he's making this kind of video game adaptation movie that was all about slick special effects and it was just a jumble of a story and there was no heart to it and there was no core to it. And so like it, it was an interesting kind of comparison to make because I do feel that Duncan Jones 
could be a visionary filmmaker whose use of special effects and you know and, and his visual flair could you know propelled him to kind of the next level um but for whatever reason it doesn't seem as though he's really gotten there you know sure. and with peter jackson like he obviously he got there but then he made those hobbit movies and you know <laughs> but then <laughs> rest in peace cool <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I, I, I think I've hit the end of what I wanted to say about source code. How about you? Yeah, man, I'll tell you what I, I, I loved the movie. I loved the opportunity to, to talk about it with you. I'm so glad that you suggested it. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, if anybody's still listening at this point, they've likely already seen it. Um, if you did listen to all of this and you haven't seen it yet, what were you doing? Uh, but, but I urge you to go check it out and kind of, you know, draw your own conclusions and, and make it because, you know, even in this in-depth talk, there's a lot of stuff that we didn't necessarily get to, you know, um, it's, you know, the film really does present itself in a way that there's there's so much information that it will sit with you far past its initial you know 93 minutes uh and really when you look at the actual actual film time take out the credits and all that it's like an 85 minute film it's a it's a compact film but there's so much going on in it so um i highly recommend it if you go back and you look at contemporary reviews from 2011 people loved it you know uh uh, lots of you know three and a half four star reviews lots of you know thumbs up etc so it's 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 a film that I feel like unfortunately does fly under the radar, but it deserves, I think it deserves more, more notice than it, than it's gotten. Absolutely. And if we've even got just one person to get off their ass and go watch it, it's streaming right now. I bought it for like five bucks. Um, I want to get, I'm at some point I own the Blu-ray, but I think I may have gotten rid of it during a move, but I want to go back and pick it up because I want to get the behind the scenes commentary. Um, yeah. But, I uh, want to check out the 4K uh, just, just because I'm, I'm curious to see what it looks like in, in 4K. I mean, sure. you know, I don't know if it would be that revelatory compared to the rest of it. But yeah. um, here's a curveball I want to throw at you real quick before we say goodbye. Sure. So over at the Quantum Leap subreddit, you know, I engage every once in a while over there. Uh, you know, if you're if you're on Reddit, if you're on the subreddit at all, if you, go, you get around, you'll see me every once in a while. I'm Tiger Samurai. That's an old gamer handle that I've had for like 20 plus years. But um, anyway, uh, over over on Reddit, somebody posted uh, today. Um, that's Tuesday, June 1st. Uh, I'm wondering why the government would grant Sam Beckett free will to jump around time and completely change history. I understand he's making things right, but he's also creating a massive butterfly effect that is never addressed in the show. Does Ziggy also calculate how many people die as a result of changing history to see if it is worth it? Also, after the first episode, Sam is trapped in time for at least five years. If they terminated the program, Sam would have no Al and he would be completely screwed. So very lucky they kept it going. Now... There were a couple of flaws with this, which I did point out. Uh, you know, the first being that the government never approved Sam's mission. Like, there was, like, Sam getting into the Quantum Leap Accelerator in the first episode was a complete renegade act that he that he took upon his own. That there was no, you know, there was no, like, he never, you know, had the government's blessing to say, like, yes, go, travel in time. Like, literally the project wasn't even finished yet from everything that we that we hear that it was basically you know a desperate attempt on his own to prove that his theory worked mm-hmm. um so there was no government approval of his mission if you will to you know put things right that once went wrong that in honeymoon express you know we get the 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 idea that like they don't even believe that he's actually traveling through time that that you know their thought is is like they think he's dead and unless they have proof they're pulling pl- the plug on the project as a whole anyway and that they still at the by the end of this episode there are still members of that committee that don't necessarily think that he's out there changing anything because there's no proof that he changed anything now to the viewer we know there is because Diane 
Diane now sits on, you know, the committee that's approving it. But, but Diane, you know, she kind of says, Hey, you know, I feel like, you know, maybe he is out there. So we'll, we'll let it keep going. Obviously the novels explore this a little bit more, especially prelude and mirror's edge. There's a lot of information in both of those novels about, you know, what the government exactly thinks about project quantum leap, um, and why it is kept going for all this time in spite of not necessarily having any proof that Sam is, is, uh, is out there. Um, but I, I did, you know, I did just want to kind of point out that, that the idea that the government knows what he's doing, I think is a bit of, is a bit of a misunderstanding because I, they don't, they have no idea, uh, what's going on. Um, now of course for the interesting talk about the butterfly effect and, you know, and all that sort of stuff, I will say that that's something that we've certainly talked about before on the podcast and certainly about like the babies that were never born because of the two people that didn't get together, that Sam was there to prevent getting together because the marriage was going to be horrible or whatever. Lisa Uh, doesn't marry no-nos. No-nos. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so I think that, you know, that, that certainly that's, that's a conversation worth, worth having. and, And it's one that we've definitely talked about a bit, but, uh, I thought it was an interesting, you know, just kind of an interesting thing that somebody put out there uh you know i do i like i said i see some of these things and it's just sort of like oh you know maybe we should talk about some of this even if it is even if it is something where i feel like we can kind of say like well actually this is you know the reality of that so sure anyway i just thought that was that was kind of interesting and i wanted to, to yeah. touch on it real I, quick. I, yeah there's there's a lot to unpack there. the one thing i would say my takeaway from honeymoon express always was the government didn't believe sam had actually traveled in time right that they thought he was in hiding and that this was uh that this was all a lie by the project to stay funded. And Diane McBride was kind of like, eh, we still believe in you. Here's another few thousand bucks. Right, right. We'll keep the lights on for a little bit longer. I think I slept with a guy named Sam Beckett once. Astrophysicist, as I recall. Just can't, <laughs> just can't remember. Anyway, that's, that's where my mind's at. Um, we have no idea, as usual, what we're going to talk about uh, next week. I will say Loki debuts on June 9th. Oh, well, how about that? Pretty soon. <laughs> Interested, still trying to wrap my head around, like, yeah, this is, this is Loki from Avengers era. Avenger this era. Is, this is much, much like we have been talking about with Source Code. This is an alternate timeline Loki. Yes. This is a Loki who has not become a good guy yet. This is a Loki who never experienced the events of Thor Dark World or, or, or Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a Loki that never was in Infinity War, who sacrificed his life. Yeah. Maybe. I still question as whether or not he actually died in Infinity War. Um so it's really fascinating. And of course it will, the time agency, um, I don't think that's actually what they're called. I can't remember what it is right now. will will of course play a huge part in this and he's going to be, you know, kind of a, an agent, yeah. uh, for the, for the time travel powers that be in the MCU. So it'll be fascinating to, yeah. to see that show. I'm really interested in it. I'm really interested in it too, but yeah. But on this note, we should wrap up this episode and, uh, yeah, put it out in the world this week. And then uh, we'll be in your ear holes next week with something. I don't know. Yes, we will. All right. Thanks, man. This has been a lot of fun. I'm glad you suggested it. It has. Cool. Awesome. See you all next week. Bye. We're going to leap out of here. Take care in the meantime.
Can't see, you'll never know.